Love the British monarchy? You've come to the right place. Welcome to the To Die For Daily podcast with Kinsey Schofield. Take it away, Kinsey. Tom Quinn, thank you so much for talking to me. I had so much fun. Is is Scandals at the Royal Palace is being re-released? No, it's a new book. Well, it, it came out in in uh, in the UK in oh, November, okay. so um, it's probably coming up for a paperback edition soon. Okay, perfect. Yeah, because when I went to purchase it, it said pre-order, and I was like, oh, well, now I feel especially fancy that I've read it. <laughs> no, I think there's always that slight delay between a book coming out in the UK and coming out in the States. That's probably the explanation. Oh, I never know why why they have that delay, but there's always a slight delay. Right. Uh, well, so what I thought was so fascinating about this book is it's like really the first comprehensive list of scandals um, that exists. And the reason that or, you know, just like Bible of royal scandals that exists. And the reason that is, you say in the book, is that the monarchy really had a hold over media and editorial up until a certain point. Can you explain that a little bit to me, how they killed bad stories about themselves? Yes, it's true. Um, although the the extent to which they've been able to control bad stories has varied over time. For example, in in the medieval period when there there, there was no media and and you could be imprisoned or executed for saying anything out of turn about the monarchy. Um, obviously, they were above criticism then. But surprisingly, by the time you get to the Georgians in the 18th century, they were absolutely lampooned. Oh, they wow. were criticised horribly, but they had lost so much power, political power by then, that they, it was difficult for them to react the way medieval monarchs would have done. They couldn't just lock people up or execute them. And that meant that people realised this is a sort of by about 1750 that you could criticize um, the royal family. Many people still objected to it. Um, but then when you got to the Victorian period, for some reason, the pendulum um, had swung the other way and no one <laughs> ever criticized Queen Victoria. She was seen as so untouchable that the media suppressed stories about her um, and about her son's misbehavior as later Edward VII. Um, he behaved terribly, he committed perjury, had strings of mistresses, but the press never mentioned it. Um, and then in the 20th century, um, we had a series, we had um, George V and George VI, and they were so well behaved that the media got into this habit of thinking of them almost in as if they were saints. Um, so again, there was no criticism. And then it really only started again. I mean, the, the, the business of, of the media being critical, it really only got going again in the 1960s, because that was the first modern permissive era. You know, when, when, when suddenly you could say anything, you could wear anything, you could, you could, you know, there was that sudden freedom in the 60s. And of course, that included being able to criticize the royal family. Right. So I think I think real criticism of the royal family, mostly in the 18th century and after 1960. And of course, we still have that criticism now because you know, why would it disappear? The royal family is always interesting, but sometimes, you know, certain members of the royal family behave very badly, as we've seen recently, you know, with Prince Andrew, for example. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, that, and that's what surprised me, I guess, because when I was reading this book in my head, based on other books I'd read, I assumed that the criticism uh, didn't begin until Wallace and Edward. 
So I was shocked to see, to realize that there was this roller coaster and that it really just depended on, you know, the likability, I guess, perhaps of whoever was in, was in leadership. And that, that kind of determined whether or not they went for them, except I think that Queen Elizabeth is so likable. So I'm always confused by criticism she receives. The thing about Elizabeth is she's very much like, you know, the thing you've the, you refer to this roller coaster, and it's true where you have a monarch who behaves very well, as Queen Elizabeth 99.9% of the time does, there doesn't seem to be much criticism. And the Queen is very clever because she never puts a foot wrong, so it's very difficult to criticise. And when the media criticised the Queen, and it has happened yeah. occasionally, she never complains and she never explains, and that makes it go away. And the younger royals don't seem to realise that. They always want to fight back. And all that does is it draws more attention to whatever scandal or whatever criticism is being made. And the newspapers, especially in the UK, because the newspapers, you know, they're like bulldogs. Once they get their teeth into you, they don't let go. And, and so, you know, if you if you try and fight back, instead of the, the media forgetting about it in a week or two, they try and dig up all the other stuff about you. And so you, you, you don't just get one criticism, you get, you know, they go into your history, they dig up all the dirt from the past. So in a way, the Queen has played a very cunning hand and the younger royals haven't you know they haven't done that and it's very difficult to know why given that they all say they admire the queen they admire the way she has avoided to a large extent criticism they can't seem to emulate her that's the mystery right but when you say the younger royals i mean prince william i he, he has sued the media i mean i'm acknowledging that but don't you think in a way he has taken notes and does emulate her as much as possible i don't feel like he fights back to the extent that no, harry does you're absolutely right when i said the younger royals i was thinking much more of the younger royals with the exception of william and kate okay, because i think and i think a lot of that actually a lot of williams um, as you say, he has sued the media, but he doesn't make an enormous fuss about it. He doesn't try to make it a world issue, mm -hmm. um, as Harry and Meghan have often tried to do. Okay. So William has sued, but it's quite low key. And a lot of that, I think, is Kate's influence on William because she, um, I mean, the Queen adores Kate because she sees Kate as the next reliable um, Queen because she doesn't complain, she doesn't explain, just as... Elizabeth uh, doesn't complain and doesn't explain. So she's a chip off the old block, as it were. And I think Kate's influence on William has been to calm down that, you know, the thing that I think he shares with Harry. I think occasionally he is a bit of a hothead. But but Kate says, look, we just we should just ignore this and it will go away. And you can see that much of the there has been some unkind coverage of Kate. But generally, it's just been teasing her about the fact that, you know, her uncle was a builder and her mother was an air stewardess. Um, it hasn't been any more unkind than that. And I think they've left her alone because they can see echoes of Queen Elizabeth and even the worst tabloids here, you know, the Sun, for example, they are very reluctant to criticize in a really visceral way, um, the Queen. And, and now Kate, to a large extent, is getting the same treatment. And, and of course, because she's with William and the two of them are, as it were, a team, they're not being criticized. I mean, a lot of people have said, it's extraordinary how Kate and William don't get terrible brickbats thrown at them, but Meghan and Harry do. You know, there's this enormous difference. And I think it's largely to do with Kate. 
Right. That's interesting. I have a PR background and I've always felt like I've never thought of Meghan Markle as anything but a beautiful woman. Like I just love her with Harry. I, yeah, I, I got engaged. Agree. I got engaged to Kensington Palace because that's where they announced their engagement. <laughs> like, like I love them. And yes. to me, it just feels like a, a couple of missteps PR wise. That is the reason that they're criticized. I admire both of them, but sometimes, you know, you're sitting there whining about daddy cutting off your, you know, your allowance, but we're literally sitting in the middle of a plague are instructed not to leave our homes. If we do, we have to wear a mask. Small businesses are going out of business. We're scared for our safety and our family safety. And I'm like, I'm having a really hard time digesting all of this, this Oprah Winfrey interview. Yeah, I think you've put your finger on it. The problem is they've got this, um, they're so entitled, they, they have so much money that they don't really understand how uh, uh, less fortunate people live. And so when they make these pronouncements, people say exactly what you've just said, you know, or it's almost like, are you living in the same world that we're living in? You know, complaining that Prince Charles hasn't given them another 20 million pounds when they've already got, you know, 30 or 40 million. So I think that is the big problem. And I think you're right. I mean, I, I'm sure they have good PR people, but I'm not sure they always listen to them, you know, because what they should be doing is if they are criticised, if they can certainly respond, I think that would be good. But if they do it in measured tones and don't seem to be in a rage and don't, don't bring in all sorts of other stuff that's not related just say look that story you wrote about it's just not true and leave it at that and then they it, it would seem I think even to the press eventually a more mature approach and the press would leave them alone because they wouldn't get the reaction what the press want is to really annoy Harry and Meghan and get them to scream and shout and bring in all this other stuff and so it's exactly the thing they shouldn't be doing but unfortunately you know, they, they do it. I think if, I think myself it's because Megan is a very in the best. I mean, this in the best sense, she's a very strong, dynamic character and she can't understand why she can't control events. You know, I think I think that's the difference. Harry has grown up in an environment in the royal family where to a large extent, you don't have to strive for your position. You're born with that position. And I think he's dazzled by Meghan's ability, you know, to climb the rocky face of, of anything. But of course, trying to do that with the royal family and the press, it's the one thing, however determined you are to change things, you can't do it because the royal family exists largely because it never changes. So if someone comes in and tries to change it, all that's going to happen is there's going to be a clash and it will be the person trying to change it who has to leave, which is what we've seen with Meg. And I think it's a great pity because at first she, she was hugely popular here. She was like a breath of fresh air, but nobody liked to see later on all the fights and all the, all the squabbling. Well, I'm jumping. Uh, I have like a list of questions here and I'm jumping ahead, but something you said made me want to go, go into this right now. Uh, I have written down that you said that, um, you know, I, I think somewhere I say, oh, Megan wants to emulate Diana's legacy as this really compassionate person and this loving, caring person. Something you just said ignited the reignited this thought into me, like, why has she not been able to do that? Is it because she's trying to control the narrative? Is it because she's, you know, Diana went behind everybody's 
back and, and had her friends tell people or had Richard Kay or Andrew Morton say someone else told them this when it was really her. Is yes. Megan just not, is, is, she, is she just not playing the game in a similar way? Well, I think you've put your finger on something very interesting in that Di a lot of Diana's appeal was that she seemed to be uh, almost an innocent, but actually that was a very cultivated image. As you rightly said, she was brilliant at manipulating the media, but she didn't do it by um, in the same way that Megan's tried to do it, by confronting them head on and doing it herself. She did exactly what you've just said. Diana always did it through these back channels. So it could never be attributed to her. So she always appeared to be, you know, when things went badly for her, it was always someone else being nasty to her, whether it was the media or Prince Charles or whatever. Um, but she managed to get her story out and get more sympathy because exactly as you say, it didn't seem to come from her. And I think Megan hasn't been able to do that. And I'm sure that's because she doesn't have, I think Diana amazingly went from being this innocent girl who really didn't know much about anything. You know, she'd grown up in a big house. I mean, by the way, Diana was really uh, more aristocratic in many ways than the rest of the royal family because they're all descended from German princes. She's descended from the Churchills, from the Saxon nobility of England. Um, but despite being this innocent 18 year old who seemed to know nothing within about five years, she had completely manipulated the world's media, which presented her as both a sort of Mother Teresa figure, but also as a vulnerable, very beautiful woman. It was an extraordinary thing. And I think to some extent, Megan looks at this and thinks, how the hell did she do it? Why can't I do it? And I think it's because, you know, Megan is much more of a pugilist. You know, she wants to fight back herself. She doesn't want to do it in the way that uh, Diana did it, but she probably should. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, so when I was reading this book, one thing that occurred to me was, you know, Prince, it seems like Prince Charles is, is trying to slim down the monarchy. Uh, the book completely justified that to me because feels like Princess Margaret, um, even Princess Diana to an extent, and the Queen Mother, uh, Backstairs Billy, James Hewitt, Princess Margaret with, you know, her, her husband, um, Tony. It feels like the people that don't really have a purpose or that are kind of like on the fringe of the royal family, allow, they all like these people that treat them normally. But what they're really doing is they're allowing people into their life that don't necessarily respect the monarchy and then you have orgies at, you know, the Queen Mother's yes. house. And yes. then you have James Hewitt selling a book. And then you have Tony being absolutely horrible to Margaret. So mm. it seems like to me, almost by reading this book, I thought, my God, Prince Charles is absolutely justified in trying to slim down the monarchy. <laughs> it's so much yes, easier think, to control. Yeah, exactly. When it's an enormous squid-like creature with tentacles everywhere, you can't control it. But I think the reason that royal family developed like that, it really stems from Queen Victoria, who used, for example, I mean, I, I, in my book about Kensington, the history of Kensington Palace, I, I point out that Kensington Palace was used by Queen Victoria and previous monarchs, but particularly by Victoria, to put all her distant relatives in. And it became very difficult for the British government to say, hang on a minute, why have we got second cousins and third cousins? 
because they didn't criticize Queen Victoria. They were all actually terrified of her on a personal level because she, she didn't have the power to insist that all these people be given free apartments in Kensington Palace and Hampton Court Palace. She just assumed it, it could happen. And, and the, the, the government was too frightened to say no. And that has continued right down to, as you say, uh, Prince Charles suddenly stepping back and saying, hang on a minute, we've got all these people on the fringes who are living at, at, at the state's expense and they are attracting the fire of the media. We need to slim it. So I agree with you. He's completely right. I mean, often Prince Charles is portrayed as someone who talks to plants and, and is a bit eccentric and almost almost a bit dotty. But in that respect, in his, his aim to slim the monarchy down, I think he's very wise because it will reduce, uh, it will eliminate even much of the criticism because you won't get, um, as you say, you won't get scandals. I think scandals in the royal family often um, arise because you've got people like Princess Margaret and Prince Harry and various other people, uh, Prince younger princes, Andrew particularly, they don't have enough to do. They don't have an official role, but they can't go out and get an ordinary job like the rest of us. So they get into trouble. You know, what's that old phrase? The devil makes work for idle hands. And I think that's the pro that's the problem. And, and if, if, if Charles can reduce it, I think, you know, it will keep the royal family going for another century, which is what the royal family really wants. That's what they're very ruthless. They, they will do anything to make sure the monarchy survives. All right. Well, you say that, but I do wonder in you saying that, does Prince Harry, is Prince Harry trying to bring it down? I constantly wonder that. Is Prince Harry just trying to have a voice or is Prince Harry out to end it? Because sometimes I don't know what side he's on. Yeah, I agree. It's very difficult for Harry. I think he's, I remember having this, you know, when you when you meet the first person, and I think she really, Megan really was the first person who, who absolutely dazzled him. I think, you know, you just get, he just, he's just been completely swept up in that. And he will do in the nicest way, what, whatever Megan wants, you know, she's taken him out of this fairly boring, I mean, they are quite boring for someone who's young, because, you know, if you're Prince Harry growing up, you can't do what you like, because you're constantly pestered by the paparazzi, and you, you've never had a normal life where you're not under this pressure. So Meghan was like a, a door opening, um, and, you know, going through that into the sunlit uplands where everything would be different, he could have fun without all the criticism, as well as, of course, as being completely madly in love with, um, with Meghan. I don't think Harry actually wants to destroy the, the royal family, even though some of his behaviour looks as if it might, you know, include the risk of that happening. I think he just really does want to find a role. I mean, it's very much like his great, great uncle, um, Edward VIII, after he abdicated with Mrs. Simpson, he thought he would have a role, but suddenly he found he had nothing to do. And the rest of his life was just, you know, spent moving around the world with actually very little to do, couldn't get a job, and the British government wouldn't give him a job, and he was no longer king. So it was a very sad life. And I think the real danger uh, of Harry's behaviour is that Harry will end up like that. You know, he doesn't really have a role in the royal family because he's the spare, as it were, rather than the heir. But there's still lots of hospitals to open, meetings to go to, charities to support. He could have had that limited role. But in California, what can he do? Right. So I think really, rather than damage the royal family, I think he's just madly in love with Meghan and wants to make her happy. Um, but one interesting thing uh, an insider told me while we're on the subject is that they both, both Meghan and Harry, believe that when the um, the, the the elder 
royals die, in other words, Elizabeth, they may well um, be able, when Charles is king, they may well be able to come back and be the part-time royals that they really wanted to be, so that they would be six months working royals and six months you know, in the States or wherever doing their own thing. That was something that Queen Elizabeth absolutely said no, couldn't happen. But I think Meghan and Harry are hoping that Charles, Harry's father, after all, will be more, you know, more of a modernizer, will say to them, okay, you know, if you want to be part-time roles, that's fine. Because I don't think Harry and Meghan really want to spend the whole time in the States and not be part of the royal family. They just, they just don't want to do it all the time. And right. they see the solution in the future. But it is interesting that, you know, that the, it's just, it's exactly like you said, that Harry is just kind of going with the flow. Megan, Megan's attitude is very much my way or the highway. And it, she has a very American attitude of, I have a better solution. I have the solution, period. Yes. Exclamation yes. point. And yes. it seems like they don't bend for anybody because I look at what they were presenting, the ideas that they were presenting before Megxit. And what I see is Edward and Sophie, you know, getting caught in that scandal where she's bragging about her contacts with Royals in her PR firm and then being so embarrassed about what happened with Sophie that, I mean, to that, to me, the queen is looking at that as an example of you cannot be halfway in and halfway out. You either have to be all in or all out. And I sometimes wonder, do they not look back at specific events and think, you know, oh, they don't like this idea because it's been tried before and it failed. I think that's right, yeah. I mean, when um, Sophie and Edward got into a scrape because they were muddling um, royal duties with commercial duties, that I think is the big fear with, with Harry and Meghan. And I think Meghan just doesn't get it. She thinks, well, you know, you play the cards you've been given. I've married into the royal family. This is a huge advantage. Why can't we do something commercial with it? But of course, for the British royal family, I mean, I think that epitomizes the problem between the two outlooks. You know, there's Megan thinking, well, the royal family is a brand. Um, you know, it is something we can we can exploit, even if we exploit it for good, which I know Megan would, would like to do, you know, to, to give hope to people and, you know, inform people and try and change the world for the better. Even allowing for that, because it has a commercial element, um, it does remind the royal family back here that you can get into terrible trouble when you do that, because obviously you're then using your royal status to promote a business which is there to make a profit. And that's anathema to the, to the royal family. And I think because it's been tried, I remember years ago before um, Edward married Sophie, he set up a, a TV company and, and yeah, it was found that he was, you know, he was using his contacts, his, his royal status to get work and to influence the way that work was done. And, you know, that just, the queen just said, that's it, you can't do that. And so I think that's carried on. And it's why um, Meghan and Harry weren't allowed to be part-time royals. But I still think they might be able to come to an accommodation um, with, with Charles when, you know, when the, the royal family gets smaller. Because, you know, Harry is, after all, his second son. It's not as if he's a more distant relative. One thing I, I wanted to ask you was, am I wrong for feeling like Princess Margaret would have loved Meghan Markle? Oh, you're absolutely right. She would have. I mean, they were both from the same mould completely. Yeah. Um, in fact, I, th I think Margaret would have thought that she, Margaret, had helped move the royal family forward to a position where 
uh, they were prepared to allow Meghan to marry into the family because, you know, as, as you know, well, it's, as the world knows, Margaret wasn't allowed to marry someone because he was divorced. And the British public, to the amazement of the establishment, they all sided with Margaret and said, you know, the, the, not allowing her to marry someone just because he's divorced is ridiculous. It's medieval. Um, and so she, she got so much sympathy for that, Margaret did, that I think the royal family in future began to think, OK, we've got to at least modernise a bit. And so that's why we were you know, able to have Kate. Kate would never have been accepted in the royal family in the 1950s or 60s. And Meghan, certainly not. So in those respects, I think Margaret would have been delighted to see what you know, her tragedy turned, as in a sense, into a triumph for Kate and for Meghan, but especially Meghan, because, you know, she really wasn't even linked. She wasn't even even British. So, you know, that that was remarkable. Someone, you know, biracial and American, because, of course, you know, with Mrs. Simpson there um, in the back of people's minds, there's always this fear. Oh, no, it's an American woman. Um, but, you know, but then again, that just shows how the, the, the royal family can modernise in some ways. Because they know it looks good and it will help them survive. Also, you talked to a woman named Kitty Power. She told you Diana was messy. I'd never read that before, that Diana was messy and she would apologize to the staff. I just that just is so sweet to me. Yeah. Well, the thing is about um, that was another contrast that various uh, servants said to me about the difference between Megan and Diana. I think Megan was always worried that she wouldn't be people wouldn't treat her as if she really was a member of the royal family. So she was overly harsh. And, and got cross with the servants, occasionally shouted at them. Whereas Diana had grown up in this enormous house in the Spencer family. She'd had servants from the time she was a toddler. And so she was very good at dealing with it. And she was always very kind to them. Uh, and she was always very, um, almost very self-deprecating um, because she was always apologizing, right? Just as you say, for being messy. And I, but I think that that became particularly bad when she was, um, you know, during the period after she and Charles fell out with each other and it, it got really difficult and she had mental health problems. So in it, but even while she was really suffering badly, um, she was still always very sweet to the, to, to, to the staff. I mean, but, I mean, that was almost her trademark and it was genuine. You know, there are other wonderful stories about she, she had tea with one of the uh, servants in, in a small flat in uh, about a mile away. And she would play with the children in the yard because, of course, they had no idea who she was. <laughs> but she was very good at, um, you know, at, I wouldn't say deliberately disguising herself, but, you know, she only had to put on a sort of hat and dark glasses and a big scarf and nobody realised who she was. Because she, she spent months, you know, each day wandering up and down Kensington High Street, which is one of the busiest shopping streets in London, and no one ever recognised her. So, you know, she was very sweet. And she, she, I think, to some extent, wanted to be uh, an ordinary person. I mean, having having been swept up in the royal family, I think she realised that, you know, there was some gain, but there was an awful lot of pain. So she enjoyed these times, you know, when she could she could go and chat to the servants or, or even go for tea with the servants or, or play with ordinary children. No, she was the genuine article, I think. 
I love hearing that. And another thing that surprised me about your book, which I, I can't, we've never heard that Diana didn't get along with women, but I think because of the Camilla Diana storyline, we assume that she got along better with men or that there was just some friction with women there. You write that she got along really well with women. Um, and that I, I loved hearing that because that is not a narrative that, you know, you would just think that she's kind of this little, this beautiful being that, you know, I guess just couldn't get along with Camilla. So she probably didn't trust any other women. Um, but that is so great to read that she was a, a friendly person to, to everybody. Oh, she really was. She got on very well with, with the female members of staff and she had, she, you know, among uh, with her sister, she got on very well. No, she was, she was, she was really popular uh, and, and friendly with, with um, women who she met. And so I think the the myth about her being more of a um, uh, a woman who who sort of was a um, a man's woman, as it were, I think that came because she she had such a glamorous appearance and she had a way of looking at the camera that was almost the kind of look you a model would have, you know. So I think people thought, ah, oh, she she must be she's doing that to make men think she's attractive. Yeah. But actually, I don't think she was. I think she 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 was. Um, a, a very friendly person. I don't. I think she was very unselfconscious as far as much of her image. I think it was partly because she was shy. It almost looked like she was trying to be alluring in some way. Um, but she was both. I think she was conscious of being very beautiful. Um, and I think it irritated her that people thought, "Oh, she's only doing this for the men." Whereas, in fact, you know, as you say, she was. She was. She had close friends. I mean, she did the thing that you know. I know my daughter does. My daughter's in her late twenties, and. Um, you know, she, she's very good at having these very intense, close relationships, which actually help whenever she has a problem. Talking to other women really helps. And I think Diana definitely had that. You know, I mean, she had to survive some really difficult times. And it was the women around her who helped her to do that. Well, and, and they were probably such good friends that we, that's why we don't hear from them, you know? Yeah, that's... I think that's right. Yeah, we hear about the men because, you know, uh, the, the men she had relationships with, partly because you know, that some of them told the press, some of them were married, much more difficult to keep these love affairs quiet, but, you know, very easy, relatively easy to keep her friendships with other women quiet. And I think it's a side of her that we should hear more about. I agree. I totally agree. Uh, I love this story. I'm not going to give too much away because this is, I would buy this book flat out just to read this story again. It made me <laughs> laugh out loud, but Diana getting uh, her, one of her lovers getting caught with his pants down. How, that is one of the greatest things, stories I've ever read. It just made me love her even more because you kind of say that this person who is unnamed gave her this confidence because she did seem, we were talking about the differences between her and Meghan Markle. Diana did float for several years around in a state of not wanting to offend anybody and not wanting to do anything that might um, jeopardize her status with the family. And so all of a sudden it seems like she got this whoosh of confidence because of this person. And there's this cute little story about that. Um, and I wish I could know more, but you've got all these secrets. I'm totally jealous. <laughs> yeah. Some of the people I couldn't name because, um, uh, some of them are still alive or people had spoken to me and said, look, I, I will tell you a few things, but you mustn't use my name. But yeah, the story about the, um, the man being caught in, in Kensington palace, 
um, locked out of uh, the, the apartment that um, Diana had um, in, in his shorts uh, in the middle of the night and hiding behind a palm tree or a potted plant. It's a great story. And it, I think it does speak volumes about the fact that, um, as you say, Diana had reached a point where she just said, look, I'm not going to be this terrified um, girl who, who who stays in her room and desperately uh, it lives only not to offend people. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to have some fun. Charles has gone off with Camilla. What on earth am I sitting here worrying and waiting for him perhaps to come back? And and she did. She then began to live. And I think, you know, uh, that was partly because she had good friends and partly because I think deep inside, as she, as she got a little older, she did have a natural confidence. You know, and as we said earlier, that confidence came out in many ways. First of all, you know, she was very attracted to men. She was very good with men. And so, you know, she, it's not that she lacked for admirers. Um, and at the same time, she became, while she was doing that and becoming confident with that, she was becoming better at dealing with the press, dealing with, you know, creating an image. I mean, it was a remarkable transformation from innocent, you know, timid little girl to this earth shattering woman who who seemed to be you know ma uh, master of everything that yeah. she touched it was remarkable this legend it's a, it is amazing i wanted to ask you if you could base this next question on what they've accomplished today what do you think carrie and megan's legacy will be 10 years from now um, based on what they've done up till today, I think their legacy will be mixed. I mean, always they will produce a mixed reaction in the rest of the world. I think many people do admire the fact and believe it's genuine, the fact that they want to do good and use their position to help people. I think people do believe that. But then there's also this fear that actually a lot of it is self-serving and a lot of it is trying to make themselves rich and richer and more famous. And so I think there will be this, these two elements, to some extent, always conflicting with each other. And I'm not sure that will change over the next decade. I think that will probably remain the same because they are conflicted. Um, Megan is very ambitious, very powerful woman. Harry wants to make her happy. They want to do things vis-a-vis -vis the royal family that are, are so far not permitted. And so there'll always be a tension. So I suspect their legacy will be, you know, here is another royal couple who have, you know, made waves. <laughs> not always badly. I mean, sometimes making waves is a good thing. So I think they'll be given credit for some of those waves. Now I could kick myself for not asking you this earlier because I'm so, this was one of my main questions, but it feels like right now because they want Camilla to be queen consort, it really feels like all these people are coming out of the woodwork to change the narrative that Diana cheated first. And you specifically said, it seems very like unlikely that Diana would have strayed into the arms of other men if Charles would have been able to give up Camilla. Now, I mean, that's all I need, but I just wanted to stress that because I feel the same way. You show up on your honeymoon and your husband has pictures of his ex-girlfriend. I feel emotionally cheated on right then and there. Yeah, but yeah. are you seeing that at all where all of a sudden people are now saying Diana cheated first? And do, do you have an opinion? I, I'm absolutely convinced that Diana did not cheat first. I think she was really in love with Charles. She was very innocent then. She was swept up by this, you know, the heir to the throne. I think this, and we know that Charles was seeing Camilla 
even on the night before his wedding to Diana. And he had that uh, very old fact. He's probably the last heir to the British throne to have to grow up with that idea that if you're the heir to the throne or the king, you can have as many mistresses as you like and your wife should just put up with it. I know it's horrible, but that was the tradition. That was the tradition up until then. So I and I think you're right. I think there are in certain quarters um, we are being we're being given this information in a very subtle way that um, Diana Cheek was the first to cheat in order that Camilla should sort of not be criticised, given that she's going to be queen consort. I think that's happening in a very subtle way. Uh, and I think it's not, it isn't fair and it isn't true. But of course, in the way of these things, that will happen for a while. And then, you know, some revisionist historian will come along and say, hang on a minute, that's, that's completely wrong. It was Charles. who. Well, make you know, it you, Tom. You be the one. <laughs> I'll be the one in my next book. Oh my God. I don't know if you can tell. I had so much fun talking to you. Well, and me I hope, too. Yeah, will you keep, please keep me, I'm going to email your publisher and or your publicity and say i want to know about all of your books i want to know everything so <laughs> i very just, kind thanks <laughs> yeah well thank you for your time today and you are so so fun to talk to and i love your brain i just it's <laughs> got to be so much fun to have all that knowledge in there oh well thank you so much very nice to talk to you thank you for listening to the to die for daily podcast with kinsey schofield a transcript of this chat is available at to die for daily.com Please subscribe to hear more from your favorite royal commentators. Cheers.